Welcome to the Guy Who Knows a Guy podcast. I'm your host, Michael Whitehouse. We have a great guest host on today, David Haberfeld. That name may sound familiar because we interviewed him in the first season, but that episode is about him, and this episode is about you. He's going to be sharing a lot of his insights as a real estate investor. He's going to be talking about why the current situation of property ownership is beneficial for tenants as well as landlords. He's going to talk about why it's a good time to buy a restaurant, but not a great time to flip houses. And in my last word segment, I'm going to be talking about free market capitalism and why it's a good idea that we should try sometime, but don't use nearly enough. So sit back, enjoy, and you might just learn something. Quickly before we get started, I want to share with you something exciting I'm working on is a new Facebook group called Confident, Connected, and Influential. It's at facebook.com slash groups slash confident connected. It's one of the ways I'm bringing people together who are excited about building a better life, building a business, building a side hustle, just becoming more confident, connected, and influential. So go to facebook.com slash groups slash confident connected and check it out. And now on to our show with guest host David Haverfeld. So our guest here today is David Haberfeld, a real estate investor and all-around entrepreneur. He was here on the show in the first season, and uh, now he's he's back here in the second season. So how are you doing, David? Good to have you back. Hey, Mike. I'm doing well. I'm uh, glad to be back. Awesome. So I, I put out to my followers and friends uh, that I was going to have a real estate investor on the show, and I said, are there any questions that you want to ask? And I got a really interesting, um, slightly Strongly worded, but I uh, thought very thought-provoking question from an old friend of mine named Tam that I wanted to start with. Uh, and then I wanted to, a little bit later, kind of get some of your advice and tips for people who are new in the business or, or uh, even who have been in business for a while, but just something that might, might spark some thoughts in them. Sure, I'm happy uh, to share. All right, so the question from Tam is, he, he said, ask why land ownership is based on violence. And what having a home would mean if nonviolent people couldn't be violently evicted for any reason. Also, on a related note, ask why they have to mention that the, that the estate industry has real in the name. I've never heard of real engineering or real medicine. It just goes without saying in most cases. For some reason, buying and selling land has to mention that it is a real thing every time. How odd. And lastly, ask them if they like the movie Rent. Um, so, so just a side note, I'll, I'll answer the, the, uh, the real one, because uh, we, we talked about this a bit before the show. I did look it up. Uh, and it turns out no one's actually sure where the real in real estate comes from. Uh, it's either from Spanish or French or maybe English or possibly Italian. But it differentiates real estate from a real property from personal property. So real property is the land and everything attached to it. And personal property is other stuff. So if you have a house or a shed or a garage or a, a, a big radio antenna, that's real estate. You know, something you have to have something in paper that shows you own it as opposed to stuff you can pick up and carry like a car or jewelry or a bushel of bananas or a nice dress is personal property. Uh, and so that's, that's how those are, are separated. And of course, real estate, since you can't put it in a, a warehouse is harder to prove ownership of and why it's its own separate, uh, separate enterprise. So you learned it here. Um, but so I really wanted to get into kind of the first part of the question, uh, which is the idea of, of you know land ownership being based on violence, and also what would it mean if people couldn't be forcibly evicted, and um, and kind of like what what is the importance and the role of a landlord in the economy, and and how do they benefit the people who 
who they house and the, com the community at large. All right. So, uh, yeah, Mike, I actually learned why reels in front of real estate from you just now also, because <laughs> you stumped me with that one. It's just always been that way. Um, so yeah, I'm going to do my best on this question. Um, why land ownership is based on violence and what having a home would mean if nonviolent people couldn't be violently evicted for any reason. Um, it's a bit of a tough question, you know, and I want to, uh, you know, I want to answer it fairly without, you know, bias. Um, I would, I would challenge him that he's wording it strongly. Um, based on violence, I would say could just as easily be translated to say based on laws. Um, if you break the law, you know, you can be arrested. Violence can happen to you. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to call it, I'm going to say that it's based on laws. And the, the reason that you, the reason that land ownership has to be regulated and governed by laws is because if it wasn't, and it was just a free for all, nobody would create it. Um, having housing is, is a, it's one of the, uh, what are the fundamental necessities like clothing and food. Mm -hmm. um, so if there was a free for all and like anyone could go anywhere and take food or take clothing, the people that create food and create clothing would stop creating it if they weren't being compensated from it. It's the way capitalism works and it is a part of capitalism that works very well. Housing is the same. Um, if, if investors, uh, builders, um, lenders, if we're incentivized to create housing, you'll get housing. And that's the only way that we can have enough of it to house all the people in the country. Um, right now at this moment, there's, you know, the housing market, the rental market is strong. Um, I wouldn't say there's a, a shortage. I mean, anyone who needs an apartment can find one. It's not like we have, you know, 1 million apartments and 1.1 million people who need one. It's not like that. We have enough. Um, but the market is strong. I have no problem finding tenants to fill it. Um, and housing in Connecticut anyway, I can't speak for the whole country because I know building is going on everywhere outside of Connecticut. Um, but our housing stock goes down every year. Um, every year in Connecticut, we have some fires. We have some places that get knocked down for being in poor condition. Um, we have some places that get bored up and just never get onboarded. Um, and we do have a little bit of building, but every year the housing stock is less than the year before in Connecticut. Um, I would, I would argue that if we didn't have, uh, if we didn't have a law where we can evict people, um, we wouldn't be able, we wouldn't, we wouldn't provide more housing. I would never buy a house and fix it up and bring it back online and make it available to the public to rent. If someone could come into my house and stay there and not pay, and I couldn't remove them or violently evict them, as he says, um, it's a, or, or forcibly, if forcibly. yeah, forcibly is a gentler way of saying that I'm using violently only because he said, I don't, I don't consider it to be. <laughs> violence. Um, but, you know, anyone who is staying in an apartment that they're supposed to pay for is and is not paying for it is stealing. Um, stealing where you live is actually the only legal form of stealing that I know of. If you go into a grocery store and steal food, you can be arrested. If you go into a clothing store and steal clothes, you can be arrested. But if you rent an apartment and you don't pay, that's a civil matter. You cannot be arrested for that. You can only be evicted. Um, I don't know why that is. Of course, as a landlord, I am biased, and I, I think that I would love to see it be a 
you know, I'd love to, I'd love to see another answer. I'm not saying if you can't pay your rent, you should go to jail because that's extreme, but um, there's no scenario where you should be allowed to stay in a place where you have an obligation to pay and then just not be able to, and not have to pay. Uh, you should be evicted. Um, by doing that, you allow people like myself, uh, builders, developers, lenders, realtors, the entire industry, which is an ecosystem, to thrive and provide more housing. And uh, that is what we want. The more housing that exists, the more competition there is, the less rent should be overall, although that's questionable because keep raising taxes, keep raising insurance and regulations, rents don't seem to ever come down, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the more housing you have, the more choice renters have, I mean, the better it should be for everyone. Um, we're not overbuilding for sure, um, but you want to make sure there's enough. Um, I don't know how directly I answered that question, but. Yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Although I do actually want to mention, because you did mention there's a, that the only form of, of, of theft that you can think of that's a civil crime. But there's actually another one that kind of ties into something I'm always encouraging people to think about, which is uh, wage theft. You know, if a business underpays someone or doesn't pay them or miscounts their hours, doesn't give them, uh, doesn't give them overtime, then when that employee who was taken advantage, who their time was stolen, basically, the best they can do is get that after hiring attorneys and everything, the best they can do is get the money that they were owed in the first place. Uh, and that's, that's why I always encourage people to think of themselves, not as employees belonging to a business, but as sole proprietor, everyone to think of themselves as sole proprietor. And to pay attention to your accounts receivable. If your wages coming in aren't what they're supposed to be, then your one client, your boss, isn't paying their contract. And and instead of, you know, if, if like David, if, I think if, if you had someone who's supposed to be paying you um, with, with one of your businesses and they weren't paying, you wouldn't say, oh, yeah, but I, I really like working with them. So I guess it's okay. You, you'd say, I want my money. Sure. Whereas a lot of people... You know, the employees are like, well, what can you do? You can't fight City Hall. They're so big. So I guess I'll just deal with it. And if you think of yourself as a business owner, even if you only have one client, that one client is Walmart, uh, it, I think it kind of changes your mindset. You don't let yourself be taken advantage of, of in that way, in that in the one of two uh, legal ways of theft that we, we have now thought of. That makes sense. And you know what? There may be more. I'm just not thinking of them. Um, yeah. But yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, uh, I hadn't thought of uh, wage theft. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. There must yeah, be some circumstances. There must be some circumstances where an employer can go to jail for you know fraud or stealing or something like that. Kind of thing. But I don't, yeah, I think if it's sure. if it's it's major and it's in, intentional, then there might be some. But it's a pretty high high bar to get to the level where you, know, you can ruin a lot of people's lives without reaching the level of criminal negligence. Yeah, or criminal misconduct. That sounds terrible. Just like living in houses for free. Yes. <laughs> so, so even if someone's stealing your wages, and that's why I can't afford your rent, you should get a better job, not, not pay your rent. You should try your best. Absolutely. Yep. Great answer and discussion. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back right after that. And I'll get to a couple other questions I have for you that I think you'll have some good insights on. I've got a lot of exciting stuff going on in my business. I've got some courses coming up. I've got an intensive workshop for entrepreneurs. I've got a job finding workshop. I've got a virtual speakers conference. I've got another podcast, a live cast, all kinds of things going on. How do you stay on top of everything I'm doing, everything the guy who knows a guy is doing? Join the email list, guywhoknowsaguy.com slash subscribe. 
So please join my email list, guyknowsaguy.com slash subscribe to stay informed of everything that's going on. And now back to our fascinating conversation with David Haberfeld. Okay, we're back. And uh, so, David, I got a couple questions uh, for you because uh, I think you might have some good insights for people who either may be new to entrepreneurship or thinking about entrepreneurship. Maybe they've, they're getting tired of their employer, their bosses stealing their wages and not paying them what they're worth, uh, whether legally or not. And um, so, you know, when, when we talked last season, you, you said that your, your biggest regret in, in getting into business was not having a mentor. Um, so share a little bit about uh, about you know, the importance of mentorship when you're getting started. So, um, yeah, when I started in real estate, um, you know, I come from a very traditional family. Um, go to school, get good grades, get a job, uh, and, and work. Uh, so I didn't have anyone to teach me entrepreneurship when I was younger. I guess I was just born with it. I don't even know where it comes from because it's not in my family. Um, and it never occurred to me to try to find someone who was doing what I wanted to do and to uh, learn from them, to not make all the same mistakes. And I don't, uh, I, looking back, if I had had that, I cannot imagine the mistakes that I wouldn't have made or the, the accelerated growth that I could have had. Um, and I, it, having a mentor is as simple as finding someone who is successfully doing what you want to do and learning from them. And as much as the world is going in the wrong direction in so many ways, uh, mentorship is very much going in the right direction. Um, I, as the years go on, people are more and more willing to share what they know uh, freely and help others. Um, maybe social media is the cause of that because of the connections. Um, but for most people that are successful, it makes them feel good and they're happy to share. Um, so if you are considering entrepreneurship uh, and you know what you want to do or have a general idea, uh, find a mentor. That's the best advice I can give anyone. Mm -hmm. And how would you recommend to, to approach a mentor? Let's say there's, you know, a few people in your town who seem to be doing well for themselves, but you're just little old you and, you know, working down at Taco Bell and thinking about starting a business. Um, how, how would you approach them? Well, uh, for starters, I would do some homework ahead of time. You don't want to, you don't want to start at zero. You want to know that, you know, I want to buy widgets low and sell widgets high on eBay or something. You want to know what you want to do within reason and then find someone who is also selling widgets high and low and who seems to be more experienced than you to learn from. If you have no idea what you want to do, a mentor is going to have a hard time helping you. You know, um, I wouldn't call it a mentor if you were to go up to someone and say, you know, hey, you're successful. What do you do? That's a totally different conversation. But that may steer where you want to go. Um, if, if you go, if you, you know, I had a, I have a good story. I was with my attorney, uh, Aaron Sarah, and we were in a AutoZone parking lot um, exchanging documents. And some guy walked out of the AutoZone parking lot. And um, Aaron had a BMW 7 Series. And I had, a, I was driving an S Class at the time. And he says to me, he says it was both. I don't know what you guys do, but I want to do that too, just based on <laughs> our cars. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was, it was quite the compliment. Um, but as silly as that sounds, and it was funny at the time, if you wanted to do something more and you know someone is doing well, you know, probably someone you're friends with, someone on your Facebook feed, and you want to ask them what they do, I mean, <clears throat> I think the majority of people will be happy to share. 
And, and along those lines, I actually have a, a question. I'm curious your reaction to it. So I've had a couple people who you know, I've told about about you and what you do and your entrepreneurialism, and they've they've wanted to reach out to you in some way. And I said, yeah, well, I did an interview on the podcast uh, last season, so you can kind of get some background on him and, and what he's about and what he's like. And I've had a few people be like, oh, I'll do that, but I'm not going to tell him I listen to the podcast because that will sound like I was stalking him. Um, so, so what is your impression of that? You have know, someone to contact you and be like, Hey, listen to the podcast. I like what you had to say. I I've got a couple questions for you. Would you feel like you're being stalked or would you be impressed that they'd done their homework? I would be impressed. They did their homework and I would be flattered and I'd be happy that I wasn't talking to myself on a call like this. <laughs> um, I would, I would not, I don't, I wouldn't feel like I was being stalked at all. I'm, uh, like when I post things on Facebook, like if I want everyone to see it, it's public. If I want only my friends to see it, it's private. I mean, I, and I could hide things if I wanted. So anything I post, it's, I don't post things to keep it secret. Like I don't do a podcast to keep it secret. I don't mm-hmm. consider it um, stalking at all. I think it's, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that I can help people. I hope people listen to it. That's why I'm doing it. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. So I'm glad you weren't thinking like, oh yeah, let's go on Michael Whitehouse's podcast. No one listens to that anyway, so I'll be fine. <laughs> uh, so another thing I want to ask you about is is two two terms that people often misunderstand the meanings of and and they've gotten often maligned because people use them in in unscrupulous ways but residual income and multiple streams of income both of which i believe you're you're engaged with in some way but you often have someone be like you can get multiple streams of income while living on the beach and and uh, you know invariably that is uh, a good way to to give someone your money and not get anything back so i, I hope you could talk a little bit about what those really mean and uh, how how they can be important in someone's life and business plan Sure. Um, I think residual income is one of the most misunderstood things in entrepreneurship. Um, You know, in real estate is a perfect example. Um, Buy apartments and get residual income. Uh, Owning apartments is not residual. It doesn't mean you have to work for it every day, but, you know, they require maintenance and upkeep and, you know, turning over and all sorts of stuff. Uh, I haven't, I have a staff to handle that, but I'm paying the staff. And if I wasn't, I'd be doing it myself, right? So it's definitely not residual. Um, let me describe a perfect example of residual income that I've just started. Um, so I opened a Firehouse Subs franchise restaurant in Bristol, Connecticut. And for me, this is completely residual. And I, I was experienced enough finally to design it to be that way. So I have a partner who operates it. He opens the doors, he closes the doors. So I am an owner and I think it will succeed but I don't know how to make the sandwiches. I don't know where to order the supplies or ingredients. I don't pay the bills. I don't open the mail. I don't know who to call when something breaks. I don't answer the phone. I don't hire, I don't fire, I don't clean. I don't open, I don't close. I don't do anything except promote it on Facebook because it's fun and easy for me. And I taste test some free sandwiches. (laughs) So, and I collect checks at the end. So that is residual income. Um, I, another common, another way that I like to refer to it is mailbox money. Um, so the money just comes in the mailbox and you don't do anything to earn it. Now that's not entirely true. I had to earn the money to purchase the restaurant in the first place and, you know, have the credit and, you know, finance, whatever, and sign the lease and negotiate it. But once it's in place, it is now truly residual. I really don't have to do anything there. Um, so if you, if you have something that you have to work on, say 10 hours a month, um, that could be great, but it isn't residual if you have to maintain it. If you didn't spend those 10 hours a month, would it fall apart? Would the money stop coming? 
um, you know, that's the difference between truly residual and not residual. Um, okay. That's probably the best I can explain it. Um, yeah. And then uh, multiple income streams. So I'm, I'm a big fan of multiple income streams, but it's like a double-edged sword. So if you try to do five things at once, um, most people are unfocused with it. They, you know, there's, there's a very common philosophy that you should just focus on what you're good at. Right. Um, and there's, and I, I don't disagree with that, but at the same time, I don't subscribe to it. I, I will do a bunch of different things. And the firehouse subs is a great example of that. I had no interest in a restaurant, less interest in a franchise restaurant. Um, but the deal made sense to me. Um, and so I went for it and I'll make some residual income for a long time. Um, I think wealthy people commonly have multiple streams of income. They'll, maybe they'll have a job. Maybe they'll have uh, real estate stocks. Um, and there's an unlimited number of ways to make money of income streams. Um, I would I would suggest that everyone have two or three or four. There's there's a million ways in the world to make money. You just got to pick the ones that are right for you. Um, and I've been asked in the past also like how small is too small, right? So. It's tough to answer. It'll be different for everyone. So if I said, hey, another stream of income, go into recycling bins and pull out cans and bottles and go recycle them for the nickels. That's going to be too small for most people. Most people aren't going to be interested in that. Um, but if you can do a if you can do something that is a side hustle, we'll call it. I'm also a big fan of that word side hustle. And it makes you five percent of your income. Is it worth doing? And my answer is yes, as long as it's you know worth it for your time. And the reason it's worth it is because what is 5% today may not be 5% tomorrow. Um, once upon a time, renting out apartments was 5% of my income. I had a job and I was flipping cars on the side and rentals made me very little money. And, you know, today it's substantially more. Um, so you have to do what makes sense. Um, and you have to, you have to pay attention to your time. Um, you, you know, ideally, you're working 40 hours a week or less. If you want to kill yourself, you can work at 80 hours, right? Um, but you have to, you can only do so many things yourself. So like when I take on a firehouse subs, um, it takes me zero hours a week for me to run that. So what else can I do? And the answer is I can do anything else I want. Um, if I was a, if I was a tree guy and I'm taking down trees and I'm making good money and I want to start another thing. I would I would have a problem if I was taking on another project that took time, where I had to personally run it. You have to hire it out. You have to delegate to make it work. Um, but you, I, I do recommend multiple income streams to everybody. Find something, and especially with jobs, because jobs are not guaranteed. You know, people that thought they'd have their jobs forever. It's not like the old days when you got a job and you retired with a pension. Um, those are our parents' days. Um, there's no, there's no guarantee. You know, you need to be able to ride, have multiple income streams so that if something was to happen to your main one, hopefully you can ramp up one of the others to replace it. And still well, one, one of my favorite questions asked people who are laid off, usually not to their face because it's mean, but is uh, so how's that stable job working for you? you know, people <laughs> say, oh, I could never be an entrepreneur. I need the stability of a paycheck. Really? How, how's your stability working out for you now? You know. I, uh, I would feel bad saying that to him also. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, I have said it to people who are coming on as clients 
who had been laid off and and they come to me and say, I need help finding another job. And I say, yeah, I can help you find another job. But given your skill set, I think you'd do really well to freelance with all three of your skills and see if you can integrate them instead of finding another job because how's your last stable job working for you? Well, I got laid off. So what makes you think your next one's going to be more stable? Wouldn't you rather have five clients that each account for five, one fifth of your income? So if one dumps you, you still got four or do you want, because also with a freelancer, you still have the apparatus set up to get more clients in a job. If you're keeping your resume up to date and you're staying active on indeed, your boss thinks you're cheating on him. Oh, and yeah. So, so you're kind of expected to disassemble your whole job search apparatus when you get a job and then reassemble it as soon as you get laid off. And of course they don't give you any notice. Yeah, it's pretty lopsided in that way. Yeah. I mean, a job definitely expects your loyalty in exchange for the paycheck, whether they've earned it or not. Mm -hmm. I agree. There are so many ways you could be listening to this podcast. Could be through the website. Could be through a podcast service like Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or one of those. Uh, could be any number of other ways. Maybe someone sent you the MP3. But I encourage you to go on one of your podcast platforms, whatever it is, Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or or one of those, and subscribe to the podcast. That does a few things. One is it shows their algorithms that you're listening and that they should recommend this podcast to other people. And two, it makes sure you don't miss an episode. So please do subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts to the Guy Who Knows a Guy podcast, which you're listening to right now. Now back to our interview with David Haberfeld. But more broadly, I want to talk about the idea of opportunity in in 2020 because you know certainly a lot of people i mean i remember in march i was seeing these things that said you what are you doing with your quarantine time to make sure you're a better person I'm like surviving like i got a kid over here i got this work to do i'm trying to rebuild my whole business crazy and then i realized a month two months later i'm not driving around to meetings i have an extra two hours a week uh, two hours a day um i'm on zoom now i can connect with people in seattle and nairobi and ottawa and all over and uh, so I started, you know, I started re relaunch the podcast and then second relaunch the podcast and, you know, suddenly just started finding these opportunities. And, and so what, what is your, what has your mindset been over the last six months as you look at business in, in unusual times? So I've always remembered, I don't remember who told me this first, but um, there's always opportunity in chaos. Um, if you're good at looking for opportunity, it's, it's here now and it has been all summer. Um, it's hard to, it's hard to guess winners and losers at a time like this, but some of them are obvious, you know, um, I'll give you an example. That's probably unpopular at the moment. Um, if you wanted to be a restaurant owner and that was one of your dreams, lots of restaurants are going up for sale and restaurants going up for sale means they're failing. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to see them continue to fail. Um, bars closed and operating at 50% capacity. And especially when uh, it gets too cold for outdoor seating, um, restaurants in my area are dropping off one by one by one, and it will continue. It's not going to stop, not unless there's a big financial package from the government. So if your dream was to own a restaurant, if you have the financial wherewithal to withstand, you can steal one right now. Um, mm -hmm. A restaurant will probably sell for the price of rent and fixtures. You know, um, and it's terrible because that's somebody else's failed dream. Um, but your job can't be to save them or save the world. Your job is to look out for yourself in that respect. 
and you may be saving them by eliminating their bills so they don't get nothing for it. Or, or even buying out their business and maybe keeping them on as a head chef and you own the restaurant. Or, or that, if you can keep them on um, in some capacity, sure. They're probably going to know how to run it if you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want it to be residual income, bar business is really tough for that, but it's not impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, so as one example of opportunity, if you buy a restaurant, this is as low as uh, buying a restaurant or a bar is likely to get. You know, I mean, within the next few months, I'm sure it may be good on a little farther, but find someone who is uh, who's on their way out. Um, so just one example of opportunity. Um, uh, forgive me, Mike, I forgot the original question. Um, but what has your mindset been over the last six months oh. for looking for opportunities? All right. So um, my primary business was flipping houses uh, when the virus hit. Um, at the time, I was remodeling five houses at once. And I stopped shopping for houses because I thought for sure that this was the next housing downturn. Um, right away when the virus hit, everybody stopped lending all at once. That's a trigger for a downturn. And obviously, in hindsight, I was wrong. Um, banks started lending again on residential very quickly. Prices are like at all-time highs right now. So I wasn't a little wrong. I was a lot wrong. And I could admit it. <laughs> um, the banks were even lending me money for a house. You know, I yeah, I got a mortgage too. I was, uh, I was pretty psyched. First one in many years. Yeah, I'm able to buy uh, a house that needs work, but I have to pay too much to get it. The market is just so hot. Then fixing it is too expensive. Uh, wages and labor are up. Materials are up. I have to pay more than I should to fix the house. But I can sell it for top, top dollar. Houses are selling for way more than they're worth. Multiple offers above asking all the time. So that still makes money. But I'm not doing it. I'm not flipping. And the reason is because this can't sustain for very long. It's just such a hot market. And if you're flipping a bunch of houses at once, let's say I was doing five at a time again. If the music stops and the housing market downturns, I'll be stuck with the ones I have. So I'm being super cautious about what I buy. And I'm kind of just sitting it out and waiting. It's too, I think it's dangerous to be flipping houses. So I had to look into other things and I'm just looking for anything that makes sense. And so, you know, uh, short-term rentals is doing pretty well. Um, The education company was, uh, you know, a very oddball one. The firehouse subs was in the works prior to the virus, but I completed it during the virus. I had a car dealership again, prior to the virus, the car dealership mentality was a used car dealership is recession proof. And the market is, you know, the economy is so good. History says that, you know, times are good, times go bad, times become good again, times go bad again. It's a cycle. And so I wanted to have something recession proof in my pocket. It was pre-virus though. Um, But I look for, I look for anything, Mike. I look for anything that makes sense. I think a lot of just believing it's there. Like I, I was, I was talking to, to one of my coaches and, and he, he used a piece of software and it sent to a landing page and I didn't know how to do that. And uh, I said, you know, can you do that through, can Calendly do that for you? He said, oh yeah, I can. He started to explain how to do it and we were short on time. And I said, if I know it's there, I can find it. And that's often the way it is. You know, once you know it's possible, you keep looking, you start finding. And if you don't look, you don't find. I, I agree with that completely. Um, like I said earlier, there's a million ways to make money in the world and you just have to pick the ones that are right for you. Mm-hmm. And those ways change. So when how when real estate is high and when the virus is high and, you know, schools are having problems and, you know, stocks are crazy, there's, you know, opportunities change, but there's always opportunities out there. And, and sometimes the opportunities are, they're not even, they were there before. You shouldn't realize it. Like Zoom existed before 
March, but I had never used it or knew anything about it. And once I got on it, I was suddenly like, wait a minute, I can visit a BNI chapter anywhere. Yeah. And then I met, I, I ended up meeting a BNI leader out in Washington state. He connected me with a few other people that's leading to a few other things. And suddenly something I totally could have done five years ago is happening now. Cause I was just got turned onto it by, by paying attention when something happened to get, cause you know, sometimes something has to be put right in front of my face before I notice it. Yeah. You know, I would, I would describe that as um, one of the benefits of the virus <clears throat> is that with zoom calls and related software, uh, the world's gotten a lot smaller. We thought mm -hmm. it was small because of the internet and social media, but zoom has made the world even smaller. Yep. Can you imagine if this virus happened, uh, you know, 20 years ago before we had any kind of teleconferencing stuff. I don't know. What yeah. Well, it would have been like 1919 where people was like, nah, bored going out now. Don't care. And that's pretty much what happened. People got tired of quarantining and just went out again. That's where the second wave came from. I did read up on that. Yeah. Have you read the, the four hour work week? I have not. Tim Ferriss. Um, yeah. I, I just started reading it. It's interesting because, because a lot of people are like, Oh, it's about, it's about like being lazy and, cheating on business and whatnot but really it's about uh the kind of thing that that you and i both do naturally which is throwing out assumptions and then optimizing our lives and our businesses i agree with that too um i've actually been through some of those exercises with the coach of mine um it's it sounds like it's related to having a vision you know about what what you want your life to look like you know i mean if you if you describe your life and you design it the way or you you write it down the way you want it to be i don't think there's anybody who's going to write down they want to work 80 hours a week <laughs> um, but yet it happens all the time, right? People, yep. people that do it. Um, and they're not, they're not writing down a vision and their, their life is out of balance. You know, anyone working 80 hours a week, your life is out of balance. Um, and you need to do better. You need to improve that. And mm -hmm. I don't, I don't care what you're doing. I don't care who you are. I don't even care if you love your job. You have to have more time for other things than work in 80 hours. That might make sense to sprint for three months. Oh, so that's called, yes. Sacrifice is different. If you have. Yep a three month sprint because you are doing something very cool, very profitable. That's time sensitive. Yeah, no, I'm down for that. Yeah, but not three years. Not for the long haul. All right. Well, it's been great to have you on the show. And I always enjoy your insights and your your business thoughts because you're a very creative and unorthodox business person. I'm sure there's a lot of other entrepreneurs like you, but you, know, you didn't go to Harvard Business School and be like, here's how we do business. You just kind of look for opportunities and seize them. So it's always great to hear hear your stories and, and follow your adventures through the internets. So I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me, Mike. I love to entertain and I hope uh, something I say helps somebody. I hope you've gotten a lot out of this conversation. I thought it was a great interview with David. He's got so many things to share. There's just three little things I ask you in return. One is I ask you to sign up for my email list if you haven't, guywhoknowsaguy.com slash subscribe. Second, I ask you to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast platform you listen to. You should be able to search for the Guy Who Knows a Guy podcast. And if you can't, go to guywhoknowsaguy.com slash podcast. There's a number of links to more popular platforms there. And I also ask you to join the Facebook group, Confident, Connected, and Influential. Facebook.com slash groups slash Confident, Connected. If you do that, you will be connected to me and hopefully be Confident and Influential as well. So please do subscribe to the email list, subscribe to the podcast, and join Confident, Connected, and Influential. And now, listen to my last word. This is the last word from Michael Williams.
My last word this week is about free market capitalism. I think it's a wonderful system and that we should try it sometime. Unfortunately, most people who advocate for free market capitalism wouldn't know it if it bit them on the nose. There's a few things you need to have a free market. You need private ownership of resources, regulations to enforce that ownership. That's what we tend to think of when we think of free market capitalism. But what about the rest? Low barriers to entry, leading to as many suppliers as necessary to balance the market. Information equality between buyers and sellers. Now, this is very different from privatization, when a government farms out its functions to for-profit companies in a regulated monopoly. Then you have something about as far from free market capitalism as you can get, with an abomination with all the worst traits of a government agency crossed with all the worst traits of a private company. When regulations prevent new firms from entering the market to provide competition, you do not have a free market. When a few players are so big they can squash any new competitors, you do not have a free market. When companies can hide key information such as ingredients, nation of origin, quality, size, or even, in the case of some industries like medicine, price, you most certainly do not have a free market. Many of these situations are only solved by regulation. What? Regulation? But I want a free market economy. Sorry, even Adam Smith himself said that regulation was necessary to maintain balance in the market. Not even getting into how regulation is necessary to deal with externalities like pollution. When you simply tear down regulation, you often tear down the basic structure that allows the free market to function. Free market creates very efficient solutions, but in most cases it's difficult to create them because of a lack of information. For example, in the labor market, most workers have no idea just how much their labor is worth. That's why I'm able to help my clients double, triple, and quadruple their incomes. This lack of information leads to inefficiency. So if you want to talk about free market capitalism, how great it is, that's great. But please know what you're talking about first. Capitalism must rest on a well-constructed web of law and regulation. Without that, you don't have capitalism. You have feudalism. And that's my last word on the topic. This is the Guy Who Knows the Guy podcast with Michael Whitehouse. Technical advice and support by Patrick O'Chang of Black Orange Solutions. Segment introductions by Amy Whitehouse and Rowan Whitehouse. Our theme song was composed by Patrick Howard of Four Unicorns Design. Other music was Bits and Bites by Klaus Appel from filmmusic.io. Find us on the web at www.guywhonosaguy.com. Questions can be submitted in written form as well as an audio file to michael at guywhonosaguy.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and review this podcast. Follow The Guy Who Knows a Guy on Facebook at facebook.com slash the guy who knows a guy. If you know someone who might enjoy this episode or podcast, we encourage you to share our links with them. JV Connect is coming up quick, December 12th and 13th. If you are looking for a networking event where you can meet people who aren't looking to just pitch you or take, but actually want to collaborate, build strategic partnerships, joint ventures, maybe even find some mentors, some coaches, people to support you, accountability partners, who knows? If you're looking for good people in an environment that's not stressful, but is set up to give you a lot of great connections in an efficient amount of time, check out JV Connect. JV-Connect.com. That's JV dash connect.com December 12th and 13th 2023 we'll see you there